Hello, the Midwest. Ah, your beautiful fields and farms and lakes and, and places I grew up. I'm so glad that we are taking the Cracked Podcast to you. We are going on our first ever tour. It'll be Chicago, Illinois, April 11th, and St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th. Ticket links are in the footnotes of this episode, and I really hope you'll make us part of your spring because uh, these are one-of-a-kind shows that I'm just so excited to do. In the meantime, enough from me about that. Enjoy this show from the studio. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also thinking a lot about something that Kurt Vonnegut wrote and wrote in many ways. Uh, if you don't know, Kurt Vonnegut is an American novelist about whose entire life work I once co-hosted a podcast. Here's a quote of his uh, that reflects a big theme in his writing. It's from his book, Palm Sunday. Here we go. Quote, what should young people do with their lives today? Many things, obviously, but the most daring thing is to create stable communities in which the terrible disease of loneliness can be cured. End quote. I love that sentiment and idea, and it gets us into the show today, going from Kurt Vonnegut, one of my favorite novelists of all time, to one hell of a novelist who I get to know personally on the show today. Our guest is uh, someone who writes for Cracked and the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. His true name is Jason Pargin, and he wrote an incredible double column about health myths that many of us are led to believe. Myths that we can improve our lives by moving past or, or also just facts that we can be aware of in order to live better and more functionally. And our topic this week is the loneliness epidemic that has snuck up on a lot of us. One more time, that is the loneliness epidemic that has snuck up on a lot of us. Didn't sneak up on Kurt Vonnegut, and it has not snuck up on Jason Pargin. Uh, so why don't you join us in looking at it? Because many of those health myths that he wrote about in his latest column factor into a broad loneliness epidemic that is worth recognizing. It's also treatable. I know epidemic is a scary word, but what's a word for a widespread disease that's also super fixable if we think about it? Because that's how I view this, and I think you can too. Because I'd like to think this is curable in a lot of situations, and there's a lot of things we can do to just be more functional, more happy, more healthy in the way we live if we just connect with more people. And let's get into how that can work. Please sit back or, you know, take a walk around the neighborhood, just like see birds and trees and stuff. You know, I know I know it might be cold out where you live if you're in the northern hemisphere, but you can make it work. It's fun. Good prelude to meeting people. Either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I mean, this is coming from a, sort of an epic double column right around the new year. But uh, just for my own curiosity, like what led you to focus so much on myths about health and then in particular this epidemic we're talking about today? This is something that I've come back to a few times because in my own life, I've never been a people person, even going back to childhood. And I've slowly watched the all of society come around to not being people persons. <laughs> so this has been fascinating to me and it's going to be kind of a little bit weird to talk about for me because we're going to get into 
all of the reasons why social isolation and loneliness and the way we kind of live now is tangibly bad for people. Like it has physical effects on your brain and your body and on society. But also yeah. this is just the way I've always been. So I'm kind of, I'm approaching it like it's, it's a, an abstract social problem, but it's also just, it's always been the way I've lived. I think I know what you mean a bit too. Cause I, like I was extra shy as a kid and then I've kind of worked against that uh, the whole rest of the way. And, and I feel like the past maybe decade or so, there's sort of been a trope out there of, ah, the nerds have finally taken over culture, like in pop culture. But I think maybe it just means like this sort of social change happened. And also we started getting more Spider-Man and Batman movies, you know, like like a very real thing. And then a very silly pop cultural thing just happened to happen at the same time. From the time I was in like elementary school, I was aware of the fact that other people seem to enjoy interacting in groups and that they they enjoyed like you know meeting people and, and doing things together where I always saw that as like an obligation like if I got invited to a birthday party that was like the equivalent of uh, a dentist appointment you know like you go because <laughs> you have to go but I didn't the fact that other people look forward to it all week or they would intentionally do it for fun I don't know what that's like I don't know what it's like to look forward to being in a, a group or whatever. It, it's so now today when all of technology, everything is kind of geared toward avoiding having to do those things right down to the fact that you can find a sex partner over an app rather than having to go out to a club rather than having to go to a bar, you know, all the, the ways people used to meet you know, and down to the fact that you you can order, it's easier to order food without having to go to a restaurant. Like all the things we used to accidentally interact with people, all of this, these industries have come up saying, you know, here, we're going to cater to your, to you, the, the type of person who finds it taxing to have to interact with other human beings. Well, for me, that's great. What has surprised me is that like all of the world has has said the same thing like oh great i finally don't have to go out to clubs anymore and and i thought i was the weird one so that's part of what we're going to discuss is like did the world change or did we want <laughs> this change or what yeah has that desire always been out there for for somebody to cater to us on that yeah i suppose we could look at some of these trends to look at it and and you let us right into this first one we've got here of of how people are statistically having less sex. That's a thing that's going on. Uh, right. And the numbers, I think when I quote them, are not going to sound too shocking until we put them in context. So if you go back about 30 years into the early 90s, about 54% of high school kids said they'd had sex. And I realized that a lot of them were lying. But <laughs> you would assume that that's the same thing now. So it was 54% then. A generation later, it's 40%. How thankless of a, a data job must it be to interview high schoolers about their sex lives? That you must hear so much nonsense. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Right. And in the previous, like a generation ago, about 5% of adults said they remained virgins into adulthood or 5% would admit it. Now it's about 15%. And then among adults, sex frequency has dropped about 13%, which is an oddly specific number. But 
So all of these, you'll say, well, at 13%, like that's like, that could just be a natural, uh, you know, a natural fluctuation. Maybe we're all just not in the mood, but <laughs> you have to stop and think for a moment. If you go back 30 years, if you're too young to remember the year 1990 or the 80s or whatever, the acceptance of any kind of non-straight heterosexual lifestyle is night and day. The ability to be uncloseted as, as gay, as bi, as poly, as anything is absolutely night and day. I cannot overstate how much harder it would have been pre-internet, pre-grinder or tender for if you're in a small town and you're gay to even know who the other gay people are because everyone is closeted. If you have any kind of a fetish, like we joke about things like BDSM or furries or anything like that, but in the 90s, if you had something like that, finding the other person who was into BDSM when there was no such thing as an internet, there was no such thing as Craigslist. And if you're like, I'm sure in a city in a major metropolitan area, if you were bold enough to go to these clubs, things like that, to be able to go out and interact, you could find other people. But otherwise, no, you remained closeted. Like that term we use specifically for, for gay people unwilling to, you know, being afraid to come out. You could use it for anything that was not straight, heterosexual, monogamous sex. So there yeah. has been a massive awakening since then. And in theory, it should be a thousand times easier to find another partner it should be a thousand times easier for someone who's into wanting to have like an open poly relationship to find other people who are into that like you can go on and you know there's dating apps just for you so technology the progressive like cultural shift the acceptance of everything should have made it much much easier for people to go out find partners be open about what they want So the amount of sex people like from someone who's from a conservative religious background like me, what they warned about was a future where we were just all having sex with everything we could find all the time. You know, that was the argument against gay marriage is like, well, people will be having sex with animals and furniture. And if you can have sex with a man, you can have sex with And they were all talking about like, is this going to be this nonstop orgy? And instead shockingly you're seeing it go in reverse and in other countries even more so than america and then as far as these numbers we're looking at a lot of them are from an atlantic article that will food newt and as far as i can tell when that article brings up like rates of people having sex or their sex frequency it is speaking about any kind of partnership of any gender and so like you say like there's there's more openness about sex there's more awareness of different ways people are into that and and theoretically just more people being able to express themselves that way however they want to and then somehow despite the warnings of conservatism also sex is dropping and that's fascinating it it, it shouldn't make any sense the reference to religion there that's not a minor issue when i was a kid again you know the the we'll get into this toward the end of the episode but the rate of religion among people that are in like the young sex having segment of the population has dropped hugely. So when I grew up, 100% of my friends were churchgoers 
every single one of us were getting lessons every Sunday about you save it till marriage. And now you like the percentage of teenagers or 20 somethings who believe in, you know, you will go to hell unless you save it for marriage has dropped massively, but that has not resulted in those people having, having more sex. You know, they were having more sex back when they thought their soul would be condemned for doing it. So I don't know if that, if that just made it hotter having, having a priest <laughs> telling you it was forbidden, if that was just that we just thought that was a turn on, I don't know. But, and we'll dig into some of the reasons because it speaks to a broader issue about social connections and things like that. Cause some of the reasons are very straightforward and kind of boring, but others are, are not, but like most things like this, it's not one reason. Yeah, because we're all complicated, and we and we're all uh, acted on by all these different forces. Yeah, I almost wonder with those uh, conservative religious warnings about what'll happen if we start letting certain things be accepted. Like it, it sounds like almost a, a misunderstanding of people who are tolerant of that stuff. Like they think somehow people being tolerant of it will also need to like prove it by doing it themselves or something. I I, I don't understand exactly how they. They made that leap there. It's very strange to me. Well, the way it was always taught to us in church was that they're out there trying to recruit, was that, you know, gays oh, are trying to right. recruit children into the gay lifestyle and that, you know, and that, uh, you know, girls are being told that it's okay to experiment with, with same-sex relationships in, in college or, or whatever, even if that, and part of that is accurate and, and that, you know, kids are taught it is natural to experiment with things. It is natural to try things and that it's okay. Um, whereas in, you know, in the church, it's like, no, the, this is sinful. This is a, a holy act that should be reserved for exactly one of the human being. So they weren't wrong in a sense. Like it, it still seems like it should have resulted in, if there is some hypothetical, a gay young man out there who in generations past would have been forced to suppress it and then enter into like a loveless marriage, uh, you know, at age 20 that that person now can, can pursue whatever relationships they want, or if they're just not the monogamous type, if they just want to have a variety of relationships, like they are now free to do that. But that's the fact that that's not how it plays out is fascinating and it is instructive for anyone who who tries to like project trends in society into the future like well if x happens then people will do y it is actually very hard to do that to to extrapolate a trend like draw a line on it on a graph and say well then by 2050 it will look like this this is a yeah. great example of how you have no idea what it will look like in 2050. Yeah, it seems especially hard to predict how permission will act on a group. Like, like it seems easier to predict a lack of permission. Like if you try to prevent people from being able to pursue a relationship or or other things like being able to vote or something, uh, you can kind of, I think, predict how uh, an oppressive force works much more easily than you can predict just people being allowed to do more things, then they have uh, a whole range of choices. And and like we're finding with this, they will in a lot of ways choose to be either less promiscuous or, or just less sexually active in general. Or if they choose to be more active, but there are equal and opposite forces that are, that are like pushing them not to be. Yeah. 
which is part of what we'll we, we'll start to get into. Like for for one thing, it's hard to separate cause from effect here because, like a lot of things we've talked about in this podcast, when you try to study it, anything having to do with humans, human behavior, and you're doing it all through surveys and self-reporting, it's difficult. And when scientists have gone to millennials and said, "Hey, come to the lab and and have sex in front of us." even fewer will will consent to that. One factor in society that you almost can't bring up as a problem without sounding like a religious conservative scold, which is the proliferation of pornography. Are you old enough to remember when porn was a rare and difficult thing to obtain? The physical media era. Yeah, I do. I do remember it a little bit. Yeah. I think I remember there was uh, one like sketch where it was a, a joke based around the idea of woods porn and just that overall yes. concept. And then a few people had to have it explained to them. Like at one point there was a time when pornography was often a physical magazine left in the woods. And that was sort of a trope, sort of a real thing. And now it's all very different. Yeah. Specifically, if you lived in a rural area, you usually had a woodsy place where you and your friends would go play because the woods are a fun place to go pretend to be whatever you go play with yeah. toy guns out there and you, there's places to hide and, and do whatever, build little forts with sticks. And there would be a place in the woods where you would hide the, the porn because you could not go buy it. There was no internet. It was not viewable on your television. There was no porn on your screens anywhere in the house. You could not go to a porno theater and watch it. The magazines were kept behind the counter at gas stations um, yeah. Most video stores did not have an adult section at all, at least not in my town. So porn was something you saw like once a year because an older kid in your neighborhood got hold of some magazines, some penthouse or whatever, and then had to stash them somewhere where the parents wouldn't stumble across them. And that had to be somewhere outside the house because, you know, there's no private spaces in a small house. And so it was somewhere in the woods. So there would be out in the woods. You would have like a log you knew to go to. Or if you had a tent set up or something out there to be like a clubhouse, and that's where the porn was. You viewed the porn in the woods. And on that call, one of the older editors mentioned the concept of going out, having a woods porn session. And the 25-year-olds on the call did not know what that was. <laughs> um, the amount of porn available now to the average person and the amount being produced and the amount being consumed is so astronomical that it can't be measured. Like you'll see stats from like the big porn sites like Pornhub or whatever, and they'll say something like four billion hours of porn was viewed on our platform this year. But that number is absolutely nothing in the grand universe of things, because just like on Reddit, a huge portion of Reddit's traffic is just these gone wild subreddits where just Redditors women will post nudes of themselves. Uh, 4chan is mostly porn. You know, Snapchat, these private Snapchats are, are, are a huge percentage of that is pornography. Uh, you know, all of these short video sharing services, yeah. like the, you know, these, any kind of a webcam service, there's so much of it that there's no way to measure it. And again, trying to figure out the average amount that a person consumes, since it's all based on self-reporting is also unknown, but it went from a number that was minuscule to 
it's as common as oxygen. If you're saying we need to reduce the amount of porn or reduce porn consumption or that it's bad for society, you're automatically going to be on the wrong side of the debate because you're suddenly taking the side of the the priests and the censors and you know you're yeah, trying right. to limit human freedom or whatever so i'm not saying that and this is where what i was talking about with cause versus correlation like are people pursuing sex less because they can get it over pornography that they, they can get some release that way or are they consuming pornography because they're having less sex or is it a cycle that goes both directions, which is, I guess is the most, the most likely, but either way, this has to be one of the factors or it has to be one of the key things to consider that people rarely discuss, but it's a, yeah. this is a fundamental lifestyle change. Like the, having pornography that you can use and that it's high quality and that it's absolutely free and absolutely available at all times. This is brand spanking new in, in human society. And we've also uh, then got some other factors here that, are just sort of shifts in how things have been where one is an overall decline in long-term relationships. You point out that single people have less sex, so that decreases the rate of people uh, doing it. Uh, then also people are moving out of their parents' homes later, and they have higher stress levels that are often tied to employment or not having employment. And all of that, that feels like a thing where, like you say, the, the correlation or the cause is really hard to suss out. Like, Maybe the Great Recession is just why all of those things happened and it was nobody's choice. Or or maybe it's some sort of thing about how we interact and how we behave. And then it just happened at the same time as that. Right. And this is where it's going to start to overlap with this next part where we talk about like how pervasive social isolation in general has become. Because that is also part of it. If you're just interacting with people less... You know, if you think about how many romantic partners met at work or at the right. grocery store right. or at the bowling league or whatever, a lot of the things that I, I don't think most people really stop and appreciate how many of your social connections occurred by chance. Like you and I wouldn't know each other if we hadn't both happened to have gotten hired at the same company. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah. And when you're a kid... For me, when I was a kid, your friends were just whoever lived within a few houses of you. Like I kind of lived outside of town, so I wasn't, I was kind of away from most of my classmates. When I say outside of town, I mean uh, you couldn't ride to where everyone else lived on a bicycle. So that meant that I was limited into how I could hang out with those people. I couldn't just go out on a summer day and wander around the neighborhood and see all my classmates. I could only see my neighbors. So I was friends with those neighbors because they were the only ones at hand. If my parents had chosen to move to a different house or a different neighborhood, I would have had a completely different social circle. Without even planning to have a smaller social circle, just the fact that you don't do those things that coincidentally let you run into people is part of it. And it's not even a choice you necessarily made. It's just the way it played out. Yeah. For me, my, my grade school was basically just comprised of kids in two neighborhoods and there was a pretty sizable multi-lane road between them. And so I just saw kids in my half of the school a lot more because I, I had to be driven to get to the other group of kids. That was just like kind of the rule to keep me safe uh, from traffic and so on. Uh, and so that was like, that was a big determiner of who I hung out with more or less at my school. Today, uh, it's it's pretty well known how much 
high school students are in particular into Instagram and Snapchat, you know, things like that seem to just bring the whole class together, don't they? Like I will, we'll talk more about whether or not that connection is substantial, but that seems to kind of eliminate those geographic barriers. Uh, right. And I think the point we're going to make as we get into this, the, the loneliness element is that it's not that those connections are not valid or those friendships are not valid. It's that they are different. Yeah. They are different in terms of what that person can do for you. And these are tangible things. Uh, we're not talking about what it does for the soul or the heart or anything like that. These are tangible mechanical things. Those relationships work differently in ways that affect your life. But we're going to realize this is a good example of how a change can happen to a society kind of on accident. It's an unintentional side effect where something that seemed convenient in the short term changed the way we lived in the long term in a way that we never stopped and thought about or voted for or even wanted. It's just, you know, the way it, it played out. Like with the sex thing, we didn't have traders on Wall Street and in hedge funds saying, I'm going to spark a housing crisis and a recession in order to keep people home with their parents longer so then they have less sex. That's my goal here in this tower. Like that was that was never the plan. It's just how it worked out. Right. And I don't think most people ever express, you know, I wish I had fewer friends or I wish I had fewer social obligations. They just had a sense that it's yeah. easier in the short term to get a sexual release from porn than to go out and meet somebody. It is less taxing, less expensive, less everything. And obviously it's less satisfying in the long run for most people, but in the short term, in a culture where you have a lot of pressures on your time, on your attention, on your energy, and you see that with everything, not just people's sexual habits, but their eating habits and their reading habits and their entertainment habits. It's not that they sat down and said, I want to read fewer books. It's just <laughs> right. that in the short term, it's easier to browse Twitter for half an hour before bed than to pick up a book, remember where you were, you know, and get into it and, and have to really think or, or whatever. Like, it's just, that's all. It's a series of short-term trade-offs that feel easier in the moment, but over the long term, it's just not as, as satisfying. And I... I don't want to get into this thing where we're talking about, well, in our day, back when things were better, instead of reading Twitter, we were reading War and Peace and reading the great works of literature, because that's just not true at all. I, I was reading the same issue of a comic I had bought just over and over again out of sheer, <laughs> sheer boredom. Like, like it was yeah. objectively even worse than Twitter. <laughs> but, um as we get into, and we'll start to get into the numbers of stuff about loneliness, we'll we'll explain why this is a problem. Let's get into them. One, uh, this first number here, as far as the idea of we're in a loneliness crisis in general, and, and not just sexually. Nearly half of Americans uh, complain of feeling lonely, and young people have it the worst. Uh, more than half of us say we feel like no one knows us very well, and 40% say we feel isolated. And that's from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution article uh, that Will Food Newt. It's a thing that is a pretty sweeping group of people, around half or more than half. That's uh, that's a lot. 
Yeah, and it's a trend that's been going this direction since I think the 1980s. So it does predate the internet by a little bit. Most of these trends predate the internet by a little bit. I And I think they've been accelerated by the internet, but it's a thing where so much of what is on the internet, the reason that stuff became popular is because there was a desire to do it. So in many ways, the internet and, and these platforms are a result of people feeling isolated or people interacting less and and not the cause of it. it again it goes it goes both directions we have in many ways built the society we want for ourselves or at least the society we thought we wanted like when you we were talking just before about people reading books less because of twitter it, it is the kind of thing where they didn't launch Twitter with a press conference saying, like, we will be the death of the book. Finally, the big book will be destroyed, you know. But they they did launch it with the goal of people would probably rather interact this way, either in addition to the way they interact or replacing it like that. That had to be at least a little bit explicit in their mission. And yeah, these these wants since the 80s and before that, they must be meeting that. Yeah. And so the big number that that you've probably seen in headlines that we will again footnote, but this is well documented, which is that social isolation shortens your lifespan as much as smoking or obesity. You die sooner, you will be sicker, you will be unhappier, you will be more prone to mental illness, you will be more prone to deaths of almost all causes if you don't have a social support group. So much of this is for really common sense reasons. Like if you collapse on your floor and you don't it takes three weeks for anyone to notice right (laughs) (laughs) like if you don't have the friend who's there who pops in every day or the way i phrased it like if you have like on my instagram i i think i have 1100 followers or something and when an average young person like a teenage kid follows me they always have like more (laughs) <laughs> even though i i am in theory am famous somehow uh they you know like this 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 16 year old guy who like one of my books has like 2000 friends well the issue is that having a lot of those connections that are slightly more removed from someone who's at your house every day if someone in another city something like that that's the kind of person who you may have like deep conversations with them, but they wouldn't drive you to the hospital or to the airport, or they wouldn't smell liquor on your breath if they if they know you're trying to be sober. Like there there are things where you can converse with them and share photos with them, but it's all through a filter because you're able to carefully manage that communication. If someone is not in the same room with you, if they're not, you know, going to the same activities in person, they can't be the one to say, man, are you drunk right now? Or are you high right now? Like, I thought you'd quit. They can't say, you don't look good. Let me, let me take you to the doctor. There's, there's a level of attention and care that an in-person best friend can give you. And again, I'm not talking about any intangible, like this is not a new age thing about where, you know, the soul must build connections to other souls. These are (laughs) things they can actually help you with in your life that reduces stress. If your car breaks down, they can give you a ride to work. 
They can loan you money. They can do things that actually help in ways that make your life better. So having a thousand loose friends that are not in person or are not the type of person who can confront you about things or stage an intervention about things, you know, they can have like a, an argument with you. They can challenge you on things. It is simply a different level of support. Yeah. And that's not to diminish the value of those, of those relationships, but those relationships are different. And that's such a important distinction, I think, for people to have in their minds. Cause like we're, like we're saying a bit, we don't want to go around saying that those purely internet online, mostly through apps connections don't mean anything because they do mean something. It's just that they also don't give that extra thing of somebody looking at you in person or being there for you in person. And I feel like most of the messaging we get in society is either, oh, those internet friendships are just as good or those internet friendships are trash and, and, and worse than talking to nobody. You know, we need some kind of balance like we're talking about here where they're just two different things and you need to know that you have both going on. Right. This isn't the only factor. All of the things we talked about in the sex part comes into play here. The fact that people don't stay on the same job as long, right? Lots of people meet their friends through work. But if you're doing a lot of job hopping, which is obviously among millennials, that's the thing now. So you don't you don't go to the factory and work at the factory for 40 years and then retire. You you get a new job every three years. You know, you're doing gig work. You you leave a job. You don't necessarily keep in contact with those people. You don't see them every day. The, the decline in church membership. When I was growing up, like my at least on one side of my family, their entire social circle was through the church. You know, and yeah, I used to be like, as kids, that's where they would meet each other at Bible camp. And like, you know, because again, it's not just you're in proximity with people, but you're in proximity with like-minded people, people who share the same worldview, people who, you know, have the same, uh, you know, boundaries in terms of their tastes and their sense of humor. That's huge. But we're not on here to push people back into the church. We're just saying that when you lose that and don't replace it with anything, where you're going there as like, on one hand, it's voluntary, but you're going because you believe you have to go. When you choose a church and then you make sure like, okay, I'm going to require myself to go there every week. It just puts you in the same room with people. And that's something where it's easier to, in the short term, it's easier to not do it. But in the long run, I mean, good God, that, that church was what those were the people who visited you in the hospital when there was someone had died. They're the ones who brought food to your house. They're the ones who passed a pot around and collected money. If you had a fire or like those were the people who were there for you because they believed they were obligated to be in. That's just, these are what non-religious people. I don't think they get that. This is what people were getting out of church, that it was the social support aspect of it. I mean, they met their spouses through church. Knowing people in my own life who have like gone away from a church, they tend not to say I'm going away from the church. And also I need to make a point of immediately rebuilding those sorts of connections. Like they just, they say, oh, I'm going away from the church because of this and that faith reason. And, uh, well, that's what I've done. You know, like, not everybody makes that next leap as well. And I don't know if when you watch an old sitcom from the 70s or 80s and the cranky dad character, he's got a bowling league 
or he's got poker night. Like he's always gone or yeah. he's at, at some lodge, uh, some men's lodge. I don't know if people grasp that the, the rotary clubs are all that crap. That's all those were for. It was just to force people to get together for something, a dumb softball league, something and build those connections. And that's how you got jobs. That's how you network. That's how you, you know, that's how you heard about, you know, job opportunities or, or everything. It, like it's all of those things that now seem old fashioned. Like, I don't think I have that many friends are in a bowling league now. I, I don't, I don't have that many friends that are in like a beer softball league or that sort of thing. Yeah. The, the things they do that like online gaming and that sort of thing, Again, you may interact with a lot of people, but it is a different form of interaction where they're never seeing your face or you're all part of like a fandom. But it's like if you're all following like the same streamer on Twitch, like you know a lot about that guy's life, but you don't necessarily know about each other's. It's all of these things that come with being in the same in the same room with with people and letting a guy vent about his divorce or whatever. So on one hand, it's fantastic that you can make, build these relationships from around the globe, but there are just disadvantages, and we're we're seeing it. We're seeing it play out that the world has made it harder to make friends. Maybe one thing that makes that not easy is we're just not told that often that it is a process we need to think about or focus on. Like thinking about that sitcom thing, most of the time if that dad is in a bowling league, he's just kind of in it. Like there's never an episode about him discovering those people on his team or meeting them or something like Homer just knows Lenny and Carl from work and knows people from the church. But it's a, it's a process that isn't usually like described as a thing. I feel like we're told that something like dating is something that's a whole adventure and process. And then something like having friends, which is in many ways mechanically similar if you're trying to get new friends it's just kind of seen as more automatic or, or less of a, a task. The whole difficulty with discussing this is that for people under a certain age, I don't think they know they're in a loneliness crisis. Like they will talk a lot about social anxiety, talk a lot about being like sad, talk about how much the world sucks and how people are awful. But I don't think that they know what they're describing that a lot of your anxiety that people treat as a medical issue that can be treated with medicine is simply the lack of practice dealing with human beings. And I've been through this. Like I got a series of jobs where I was forced to interact with people. Like I was forced to manage people. Like I didn't like it and it was terrifying, but it took years and years and years. But like anything else with practice, you, you don't, get necessarily to where you like it, but you get to where you learn how to do it because there are like anything, there's tricks you learn. You, you learn what stories you can whip out when a conversation hits a lull. You, you learn how to remember people's names. You learn what type of thing people don't like. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you learn it the hard way. So, we are in a generation and younger people who the awareness of mental health issues is fantastic and so much better than before. Yeah. But it can also lead to a, a certain type of hypochondria where we like to self-diagnose things. And so we like to declare ourselves that we've got 
anxiety or a certain type of disorder that in reality, what we're just feeling is the discomfort of having to do something that, that we just don't do. Well, and also you pick out in, uh, in the piece and other things that for the health reasons we described before and just other reasons, like it's so critical to go through the cognitive load and the difficulty of feeling bad at this skill and getting better at this skill. And I mean, a few people have some truly clinical thing where they're just blocked from doing so and, and need medication or help to get past it. But for a lot of us, we need to take on that load because otherwise it's it's just really detrimental. Like there's no uh, alternative or replacement for it. And also, it's easy for people to misunderstand what the medication does. The medication does not make you charismatic it doesn't oh no <laughs> it doesn't make you fun i mean there are pills you can take that make you more fun at parties let me let me correct that <laughs> but what what it can do is tamp down the nervousness signals so that you can go out and do it and that by going out and doing it you can become good at it but the the pills won't make you good at it it's just the the actual physical fear you feel it can dull that to a degree where it's more tolerable, but the process of going out and meeting people, you still have to do and, and screwing it up and saying the wrong thing and embarrassing yourself. Those are all things you still have to do. It's just, this makes it so you don't have a panic attack when you try. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that's, it's not to diminish like the symptoms people feel at all. I, I, everyone listen, I have been there. <laughs> I have Same. been there. I'm not. I'm not the popular kid at school who's like, "Well, you just got to be yourself." It's like he's like the world's coolest kid, and he's he's like, you know, I've just been myself, and everyone loves me. You should do the same. And it's like, well, no, I've tried being myself, and everyone hates it. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, that's all. And again, this is something. The fact that it's gotten worse over time, this is not a biological disease. This is a this is a social disease that has come about as a result of our of our habits. And some of it's not our fault. You know, again, the fact that I would not have everyone go back to a world where you're forced into a church that you don't believe in. But that's just right. something you will be socially rejected if you don't do it. I would not ask to go back to a world prior to social media. Not at all. I would not. I would not go backward at all. But we have lost something here that I think there will be industries and there will be cultural movements around trying to revive those things, like finding ways to get together. And you do see, you know, like something like an escape room. You know, that's something where it requires your friends to get together and physically do a group activity, like things like that. Yeah. As an industry. That's appealing to people wanting to get together and do stuff in person and to have an excuse to do it because you've made an appointment, you've paid for it, we got to go do it. When you, at the very last minute, you may feel like, nah, I just want to stay home and just stare at Netflix for four hours. And that's the kind of thing I think you're going to see more of because a lot of those hobbies that were group type things that kind of went out of fashion there's other stuff you can do. You don't have to, you don't have to go do lame stuff. It's, <laughs> you know, it, it's, you can find something, but stuff that just gets you, gets you in the same room. That's all. Yeah. There, there's options besides square dancing. If that's not for you. Exactly. I know that like clubs have 
been in decline for a long, long time. Like with the, the rise of, we've written about this on the site before with the rise of like dating apps and stuff like that. Like a lot of clubs have shut down, like, which is actually a big loss to society. It, like the, the club scene is particularly the gay club scene. A lot of our slang comes from there. A lot of our fashion trends come from there. Like that's yeah. a, was a vital, like vibrant culture for decades. Like these underground, you know, clubs where these people could go and dress up and be cool. And where now they just meet over an app. It's, it's not the same thing. And that's an invisible loss. Like that's something where you don't think of it as like a loss to the culture, but there's a lot of that stuff where people used to gather in various contexts where great things happened, you know, creative people met each other. You know, when you read about like the history of any band, you know, when, when I like, um, I just listened to a, a big, a long interview with the surviving beastie boys. And, and so, you know, these guys came up in the seventies and eighties and it's like, well, there was this record store in Brooklyn where we all hung out at. It's like, man, do, do people do that now? Like, are there record stores where, where like, 16 year old kids just hang out and then they're like, Hey, we should form a band. Would they have met if they were all 16 years old now? Would they have ever, you know, but, but they, all of those old stories sound like that. It's like, well, we all used to hang out at this club called blank. It's like, is that club still there today? You know, but you don't think about that. You don't think about all of the people who aren't, you know, all of the, the creators and collaborators who aren't running into each other, and you say, well, yeah, but maybe they met on, you know, today they would meet on a message board, some fandom message board. It's like, yeah, but are they, are they in the same city? Can they, can they get together and, and hang out and kind of be creative with each other? And, but, but you never hear that brought up as like, you know, we're losing the next Beastie Boys because those guys, you know, today would never have, have met each other. That's a very real thing. And, and almost suggests a positive to me and that like, there is a way to recalibrate and still get those guys together if if we're all just aware that those changes are happening. Like they could, I don't know what it would be. Someone can invent it, but some kind of over the internet way where all those people connect and and trade files and build music together. Like like maybe maybe a lot of these changes are things that are just the result of society changing and we haven't quite recalibrated yet to the next thing. I don't know. Because I do think we crave that. Like, I think when we're made to do it, we realize how great it is. It's just that like so many things it's in the short term, it, it, you know, like anything that requires effort, like once you do it, you realize it's great, but it's obviously easier to not put out the effort, like running a marathon, I'm sure feels amazing once you have done it and you get your little medal or whatever, but it's obviously easier to just not. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, here, you know. here. Yeah. But the other thing, bringing us to the next section, I love interviews. Like I just described, I love reading articles about like successful people and what they were like when they were younger, because I think it's, it's fascinating to see how they got there. It's fascinating to see some of the advantages they had. Yeah. And it's fascinating to see what life was like in the 70s and 80s or whatever, because what you hear are stories like, well, yeah, during the summer, me and uh, the the guys, we would just run around the neighborhood and just uh, ride our bikes around the neighborhood and the city and just, you know, we just come home at night before bedtime. And 
And you realize it's like, okay, well, this was like 1980s New York or wherever these people are, are from. And, and they all have very similar stories. It's like crime was rampant at that time. And they were like just like burning cars sitting in the street. And then you would have like these 12-year-old kids just like playing baseball out in, out in the street. And you realize that even though the world was more dangerous back then, people were also more trusting. And this also is something that is measurable. The fact that the loss of social trust, which of course ties into everything we've just described in both a correlation and a causation sense, in that you don't interact with people because you don't trust them, and you don't trust people because you don't interact with them. Like we say, I don't know exactly what's driving the the drop in trust, but we've got a few things here that that could be doing it. And one one poll we're citing here is that millennials, only 19% of them say that most people can be trusted, which is an all-time low in a poll that they've been doing for decades, which had its peak trust in the late 1960s. 56% of people saying people are generally trustworthy. Now we're down to around 19 in that same study. The way it works is levels of trust are lower the younger you go. So um, among millennials, which in this poll, they were calling anyone 18 to 29, it was only 19%. One in five said, yeah, most people can be trusted. As you go up to older groups, like my age group, I think it was like 35, 36%, something like that. Elderly people, it's probably the majority. And they've been doing this poll forever. And as you go back in time, the decline of trust, you can track it going back to the late 60s. And so at that time, if you break it down by age group, like young people was in the mid 40s. And then, but all respondents, it was back then, like the average person said, yes, most people can be trusted. This is a huge shift in society. And it's one that has been written about. There are books done. Like there was one big study done in the late nineties about this. This predates the internet, but the decline of trust in America is a much discussed subject. And it is one of the reasons that you've seen things like the rise of populist politicians like Trump um, because this is a, a Trump yeah. episode ah. that we've just been working around to. Ding, ding, ding. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> if you can nail down why Americans are all losing trust in each other and come up with the answer, you will win a Nobel Prize because that is the thing everyone would like to solve. Loss of trust among people. And again, this is not people losing trust in institutions, politics, government. They have, but a lot of those numbers have kind of stayed consistent. This is people losing trust in each other. This is people saying that the average other person cannot be trusted. That is lethal to a society. Like in trying to accomplish anything as a country, as a, as a society, as a culture, trying to get anything done. If the average person doesn't think the average other person is telling them the truth or can be trusted, you have no chance. And yeah, in in particular, that, that point about institutions staying steady, like that actually, the distrust of institutions makes a little bit of sense. Cause like, obviously if I have stuck my head in the news all day, 
in this era, then I pull out of it and say, well, of course, no one trusts our institutions because of Trump and those other people. But, uh, you know, those previous decades, they had Reagan, they had Nixon, you know, like they had they had plenty of reasons to not trust their institutions then either. So this shift among how we see each other is is pretty novel. Yeah, it's novel and it is extremely difficult to nail down. Now, we're going to mention in a moment, this, it turns out, and you and I only found this out as we started uh, researching this, this is a political controversy. Occasionally, I will retweet an article or something about this subject, and on multiple occasions, it's turned out the person I've retweeted is like an extreme right-wing politician. Yeah. <laughs> because I guess this is a this is a talking point among the right, which is that, and they're they're framing it from... See, this is a proof that society was better in the 1950s or, or whatever. Like we need to get back to, to traditional values. We need to get back to church and we need to get back to whatever. It's all this newfangled technology and pornography or whatever. And then I have since found out that among the extreme right, which is like actual neo-Nazis, their whole thing is that race mixing has caused this, that the reason you had declining trust since the 1960s is that this is when the, you know, equal rights amendment, things like that, you, you know, you've had, you know, and women entering the workforce and feminism that all of those things that we used to all be very, very happy in society when we were all separate, but that now that we've mixed, this is evidence that that was all a huge mistake and their solution Rather than making people stop being racist, <laughs> their their solution is clearly we need to get rid of the minorities. But there, but, but I did not realize until recently that this was a talking point among those groups. Like, see, this loss of social trust is evidence that the liberals have screwed us because, you know, back when we all kept to ourselves, quote unquote we were happier and that this is evidence that the races cannot mix. Never mind the fact that once upon a time, someone would have said the same thing about the Irish and the whites and right. about the Italians and the whites. Like, see, this is evidence that the Catholics and the whites <laughs> cannot mix. But, uh, like that, that we have continually redefined as we have adopted more and more groups into our whiteness that to now rewrite history and say, see, White people have always gotten along. We didn't realize this was a hot button issue until we started to dig into it, but it absolutely is because everyone wants like their own explanation for what's causing this. And again, you can't nail down any one cause. For, for example, to to take the the right wing politician side for a moment, I don't doubt that the loss of like church membership has contributed to this because yeah. once upon a time, like I think religion was a binding agent, but it was binding in the sense that we here in, in Christianity are like an Island of good people in a sinful world. I was not given a lot of sermons on all people are good and trustworthy. I was given sermons on all Christians are your brothers and that we must stick together 
to resist the sin of the world <laughs> and the rise of Islam and, and the Satanists and, and all of that. Right. It's just that once upon a time, you could walk around town and 100% of your school classmates were all Christians. And 100% of your neighbors were all Christians. So when you asked in a poll, are most people trustworthy? You could trust people in your church because you were part of a social group that would enforce it. If yeah. there was a business deal where one member of your church sold you a car and it was a lemon and they screwed you on the deal, you had other people you could complain to. All of your social circle is there in that church. You could it could become a controversy. There, you know, they, they can other people can pressure them to undo the deal. Versus if you just bought a car off Craigslist from a stranger across town who you're never gonna see again. The level of social trust is different because in that prior case, even though you weren't friends with that person, you had a connection that could help enforce the trust. You know, if someone was lying about you, spreading rumors about you, like you had recourse because you were all there every Sunday together. You could appeal to the pastor, you know, the church elders or whatever to intervene on your behalf. There were, everyone was a friend in the sense that they had motivation to not screw you over. Whereas if yeah. you're just selling something anonymously on eBay or spreading a rumor about somebody on social media, there's not much they can do to you. So that looser social connection also means it's easier to stab somebody in the back. So it's not so much the way they frame it as, well, we need to get back to God because now that we've given our souls over to Lucifer, he has instilled <laughs> the poison of mistrust in our hearts. And I think it's less about that. It's more about just the mechanical way by which social groups deal with each other, handle disputes and enforce norms, that sort of thing. But again, I would not go back to that because again, part of that was everyone dresses the same. You would not have the weird person with the fetish, like by keeping everyone in the closet and enforcing conformity, the majority group gets to say, see, everyone's like us. We're all on the same team where now, since there's been an awakening of realizing, oh, this person does have a different sexual preferences. This person doesn't actually believe in God at all. This person does have a secret magazine collection that, that we wouldn't understand, you know, and realizing that the truth of the matter, which is that these people were only conforming because they were afraid. Now this, for the people in the majority that has led them to have like a sense of mistrust. But for me, the problem has to be them learning to trust people who are different from them. Not that, the people who are different should be made to go back in the closet. When that sort of right-wing politician viewpoint comes up, and I, and I don't think we're putting very many words in their mouths. I, I think that's really how they frame what they believe. It confuses me because like I grew up going to Catholic church every, pretty much every Sunday, and we were not bound together by like our, our passion for the, the Council of Nicaea or whatever. We were bound together by this is a group of people that all get along doing this thing together. Like we all go get donuts after mass together. 
So I'm very confused when they're like, ah, the solution is is a a rigorous return to super specific uh, doctrine and belief in God. It's it's probably closer to a some kind of return of a third space where we all hang out and uh, get to know each other and recognize that we're a lot of us are trustworthy. If I were to campaign on on some basis of trying to fix this problem, that would be my angle. That. It is a cycle. And again, I'm, I'm citing what I know from my own life is that the more you are removed from people, the more scared of them you are. And this is people who travel. You know, one thing they find is like their view of the world and how scary they find the world or how scary they find foreigners goes away just by interacting with them. The reality of people is usually less scary than what you believe about them from afar. So that's where it is. It becomes a cycle because you don't find yourself in situations where you are having to interact with people by necessity. Like it's, as I mentioned earlier, there's the sweet spot of something you have done voluntarily, but it becomes an obligation. Like it's something you, you need to do or want to do, but also it puts you in contact with people who you otherwise would not have been friends with or otherwise would never talk to. That, I think, cures this as well as anything, because it's not so much that you learn that people are trustworthy. You're just put in situations where you have to trust them, where you have to be in a room with them, where you have to let them see you and see you embarrass yourself, see you in moments of weakness and things like that. And then you see them in the same way and you realize that you didn't necessarily have anything to fear because anyone who's listening to this and saying, well, yeah, the reason we don't trust people is because people are are horrible now. I I know it's hard to measure how horrible people are, but in the (laughs) ways we can measure like crime, it's all gone down. It's all gone down massively over the last 30 years. And we're in the middle of like a 50 year drop in, in the rate of crime and things like that. You know, the the crime has gone down and when someone says most people aren't trustworthy, I don't think they really believe it because I don't think you could live your life if you really thought that. You, you look at the average, the number of times a day you have to trust someone to not screw you over. Like how could a service like Craigslist even exist or Airbnb or eBay? How could these exist yeah. if most most people, most people were dishonest? Of course there's dishonest people in the world. We've all encountered a dishonest person. But to believe that most people are untrustworthy or dishonest or whatever phrasing you want to use, society couldn't function. You you wouldn't you wouldn't feel safe walking through a crosswalk. You wouldn't feel safe walking home from work. You wouldn't like so much of what you do in business and in your friendships and in just everyday interactions and buying things. There's some honor system element to it. It would be so easy to steal from most stores. And the reason, you know, that they only have a trivial amount of stuff stolen is because most people are not thieves. It's just factually true. So to say most people are not trustworthy is very similar to saying the earth is flat. Like you're stating an impossibility. (laughs) So it is something that people say, but don't 
really mean in my opinion? Because in your life, you're going to have to trust a babysitter. You're going to have to trust an Uber driver. Like those right, people are strangers. Right. Like, And we clearly do because those businesses and those services all thrive. Yeah, Uber and Lyft in particular. Like that's the just getting into a stranger's car without vetting them is, is a pretty straightforward horror premise if you want to make a horror movie. But Uber and Lyft are so popular that occasionally I'll read blogs that are arguing that like Uber and Lyft and things like it will start to change American car ownership. Like, like they, they are predicting some people will just move away from owning their own car in general because of this service where we put extraordinary trust in someone by getting in their car and letting them drive us through traffic. Right. And like, if you change the poll question from is the average person trustworthy to do you think your neighbors are trustworthy? The numbers actually double. It actually goes up to about 39% among millennials. So it's like, well, the people I can observe every day, I know they're okay, but we're clearly an island in a giant toilet of humanity. <laughs> like the, the more you remove to people and this is where the other getting into the technological internet, social media element of it. We yeah. have absolutely built a filter for ourselves where we only see the worst in people. And if you're talking about millennials, you are talking about a generation who was raised by parents who were in the middle of a crime panic. This was in the death wish era and in all these movies about crime out of control and escape from New York and the future is just going to be crime and murderers everywhere. And so these are kids who were raised in many cases by parents saying, if you leave the yard, you will be kidnapped and murdered immediately. (laughs) So that shapes your worldview right out of the box because you're taught stay in sight. If we're at the mall, Hey, no, no, you have to stay in sight, you know, cause uh, you'll be abducted if you're not in sight. Like that obviously teaches a kid from being a toddler forward that the world is just full of monsters. But today like Twitter is a constant stream of outrage of the day. And when the outrage is not some public figure, if it's not uh, Trump or some other congressman saying something racist, it's usually a viral video of an average person being horrible. A couple of weeks ago, I had one in my feed. It was just a video of a guy terrorizing a cat and it had gone viral because everyone wanted to tell this guy he was awful and, and start a witch hunt over to find this one guy abusing his cat. Today, tomorrow, it'll probably be some white lady yelling at, freaking out at like a fast food counter. There's subreddits, dozens of them that are just collections of these outrage clips, viral outrage stuff that people just, they have millions of subscribers and people just sit there and consume that stuff all day. Not people in power acting up, but your average person saying their average person is a piece of crap and it's just filtering people at their lowest moments or the people who have personality disorders or whatever and just filling your world with these examples collected from all over the world. It's like, I'm going to sit here in California and I'm going to watch a clip 
of a guy abusing a cat in Argentina. That's a new thing. Like, <laughs> like, trust me, that guy was abusing his cat 30 years ago, a different cat, because it would be dead now. But you just didn't know about it. Now that you're using this because outrage makes stuff go viral and because we are all motivated to collect likes and retweets or whatever. And so we're, we're motivated to propagate the outrage. It's very easy to just get this constant stream of people are terrible. People are terrible. People are terrible. That once you turn off your computer and your phone and walk around out in the world, you're not running into that. I've eaten fast food my entire life. I think I've maybe seen one person freak out at the counter about something in all of the thousands of times I've gone. But on the internet, there are entire subreddits of people freaking out at fast food counters. Like you can, if you observe the world as it actually exists around you, you get a completely different picture than if you open up your phone and say, okay, what are people yelling about today? Yeah. Now I'm just thinking about how many, positive customer service interactions have happened around me and just kind of washed over me without me even noticing. But I can, I can vividly remember that one video of a a lady yelling at Dunkin' Donuts employees. It's, it's pretty pointed in my mind. And some of these people mean, well, not the yelling people, people sharing it because a lot of one of the hot things is if the lady is being racist um, or the, there was that guy, whatever happened to that lawyer who was yelling because he heard people speaking Spanish and then they, they tracked down his name and he got fired from his firm. Do you, oh. Were you in on that one? I think I remember that story. It was in Manhattan or something. Yeah. They, they just essentially did the detective work and, and got him fired. Yeah. Yeah. And we all hated that guy for like 48 hours and we all just moved on. Okay. Well, what percentage of people are that guy or, or is that guy even like that all the time? I don't know the background for all I know. The guy was having like a nervous breakdown or something, or he was under the influence of something or I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's having like a very, very bad day. I don't know. The rule should be, if you see that clip, you should be forced to watch like 500 more clips of that person as they exist in the rest of their, of their life. You should then have to watch like this person taking care of their disabled child. Here's this person getting laid off from their job a year ago. Here's this person in chronic pain. Like realizing what got them to that place, what got them to where they finally snapped, that we're going to capture that 20 seconds out of their life and then from that conclude that most people are terrible. That's toxic. That's a toxic process because... If you were in that person's situation, you would have done the same thing. When I say in their situation, I mean the whole situation. If you had lived their life up to that moment, you would have done the same thing because no one is born yelling at Dunkin' Donuts employees. You don't come out of the womb (laughs) yelling at fast food workers. Yeah, you get there through a series of experiences that most people who are like that do not want to be like that. I'm speaking as someone who has anger management problems. That is one of my enemies, my, my, my anger. It is, it is something that is, it is ever present, like, like an infection. It's something that flares up and you manage it and you try it. But there are absolutely people out there. uh, Many people 
whose only interaction with me is me yelling at them for whatever reason, a customer service person, or they screwed up something on an order and I finally got frustrated after I talked to 15 different people or out on, you know, on message boards or on the many platforms I post on if I was having a really bad day and they were like the 30th person to ask me the same question. And I finally, you know, flipped out to them. I only exist as the angry yelling guy on on face on Reddit, on Facebook or wherever I posted it because that's all they've got. They didn't get the whole context that I would use to excuse myself, right. which is, well, I had been awake for 18 straight hours. I was having the back pain that sometimes comes back. I was in, you know, I was exhausted. I was at the end of my, I, I had been patient with the previous hundred people and you were the hundred and first where I finally lost it, even though you weren't there to see the previous hundred like all of the excuses I would write for myself, you have to be willing to write those excuses for other people because they can say the exact same thing. The way we've got technology now that strips those interactions of their context kind of summarizes this whole thing because yeah. the whole point of dealing with people every day in person is you get a sense of the whole person. And it's true. After getting a sense of the whole person, you may conclude that they are a piece of crap. But, but for the most part, that's not what you find. For the most part, you find that they can be a piece of crap on some days and on other days they're fine, but that you've got to kind of, you can get a sense of why they are the way they, they are. And the modern world is very good at robbing us of that. And I also really like what you said a little previously, too, about how some of the people posting this evidence of people flipping out mean well, like they think they're policing or fixing or generally improving that kind of behavior in society by publicizing it so much. And I think they really do mean well, and then also probably aren't thinking about or aren't aware of the way that pointing out that one person is still probably a net negative because it does build that distrust of all of us toward all of us and and may not be worth the the kind of policing that they think they're doing. They've also just kind of deputized themselves to do, but they think they're doing a good thing. The people who worked really hard to build the phone that they're filming it on just meant to do a good thing. They didn't design it to try to strip all context out of life. There's a lot of like good intentions, which obviously paved the road to hell, as we've all heard on on mugs and T-shirts. But there's a lot of good intentions there. And then and then people just, I think, either don't have that perspective or or simply don't have it in that moment. And this is where when we mentioned earlier that this is like poison for a society, I cannot stress this enough because I don't just mean that it makes everyone less happy, which it does, or that it makes everyone die sooner, which it does. Because again, if you're afraid to have a social circle, if you're afraid to interact with people because you're, you're afraid that you'll get tricked or your heart broken or whatever keeps you from going out that over the long term, you know, that lack of a, of a social group, that lack of support is lethal as a society. This is the atmosphere where authoritarians take control. Because this right here leads us to the oldest scam in the books. Literally the <laughs> oldest scam 
in humanity yeah. is one guy saying, hey, you can't trust each other. You can only trust me, me, the one good person. This is why when cults go to recruit, they find people with no social connections. They find people who are single. They find people who have been disconnected from their families. Not, not entirely, but those are the ones who are the most ripe to be plucked off. When hate groups go to recruit, they are finding kids that are detached from their families, detached from their social circles, who don't have promising careers, who don't have any of those things. You know, loners, people who don't have anyone to kind of police their behavior and ask them what they're doing. Um, people have become disillusioned with their system, with their family, with whatever. Those people are the ones where a hate group, a gang, a terror cell can come along and say, you cannot trust anyone but us. We will provide the thing that you at the fundamental core of your being desire, which is someone to trust someone to put your faith into someone who will look out for you. And this is where authoritarians, when they can look out in a society that is very fractured and everyone hates each other can say, I will protect you from everyone. I will make sure that no one hurts you by putting up cameras everywhere. I will make sure that no one bullies you on the internet by monitoring all messages on the internet. I will make sure that any offensive ideas, the things that are, that you know, are are actually those ideas that are cancerous or toxic to society. I will police those ideas and make sure that they don't get out. I will do that for you. I will take that responsibility on because no one else, you certainly can't trust your friends and neighbors to do this. I will be that support. I will be there. All those things that they're not providing I will provide it. And that turns out to be a trick and a grift approximately 100% of the time. Yeah, as you said, oldest trick in the book, literally older than books. Uh, We do all need to have uh, strong enough connections in our lives to resist. Because especially I feel like once people buy into that kind of group, good or bad, it's, it's very sticky. Like it's something you really try to hang on to. We uh, were looking at religion. You pulled some stats that said that uh, among the elderly right now, about 88% of people are affiliated with some kind of religion. Among people under 30, it's only 62%. That is a big drop and also still a lot of people involved because a lot of those people say, I know maybe other young people around me are going away from it, but I've bought into this group. It's become a thing for me and and it's a, a connection I really want. So I'm going to hang on to it. It, it troubles me that when people buy into the the terrible version, which is a, a strong man, like we were describing, that's sticky too. Like once they've committed, they a lot of times are kind of in for uh, for the long haul. And it's not just dictators. It's you get like these personality cults. You get like Jordan Peterson, somebody like that, where they're they're like life gurus. Yeah, but they're also pushing like a political agenda. But it's based on. Here's what's wrong with society. Everyone is lying to you, but me. Right. You know, everything you read, the media, everything else is full of lies. I speak the truth. Come here for the truth. And I am the source of all truth. And 
it will always be bundled with a bunch of positive things. A bunch of positive stuff about your know, confidence and self-care and being strong and hard work and things that no one can argue with. Yeah. And then mixed in with it will be this thread of distrust and this this toxic idea that everything has fallen apart. Society has fallen apart. Never mind the fact that standard of living continues to skyrocket. Never mind the fact that technology is full of marvels and that our ability to connect with each other is, is amazing. And that your ability to do everything from travel to view the great works of art or the great works of literature is greater now than at any point in the past, your ability to be exposed to other faiths and religions and other you know schools of thought that before would have been very difficult to access that, that all of these things that are forget about the the trivial stuff the things that we always have believed are key to like a rich spiritual life of a deep thinking person all of yeah those things are more available to you like the rate at which people travel abroad is astronomically higher now than at any point in the past. Like we, we all think about how miserable airlines are, but they're also more affordable than at any point in history. Like, like this was not always a thing where you could just save up your money and fly to Europe and go on like a cheap trip to, to see, you know, some other culture, like all of these things have gotten better, but every cult leader, every hate group, every strong man always, preaches the same message, which is we are in hell. Like everything has just absolutely gone in the toilet. Crime is rampant. And the fear of everyone who is different from you. It's easy to see it when you see other people doing it. When, When you see Trump like scaremongering about like immigrants or asylum seekers, he's not appealing to people on the border. He's appealing to people in Iowa and Wyoming who have never run into an immigrant. It, like the further you get from the border, the, the more scared of immigrants they are because it's not a real person you've actually interacted with. It's this boogeyman. It's this scary monster thing. And the same thing, if you've never met a Muslim, it becomes very easy to say every Muslim is a terrorist. Every Muslim wants to convert you or kill you. If you've never met one, if you're not in an environment where you have to interact with them, routinely talk to them, become friends with them, sit in the same class as them, it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, none of them can be trusted. They're all, you know, they're they're all looking to thwart civilization or whatever. It's yeah. when you actually get into contact with them that, that a lot of that fear goes away. But that fear of the the other and the other, the scary others are all around you. That always is what people use. And so they will stoke those divisions. They will, they will continue to drive people apart. And the message is always not just that those people are different, but that those differences are absolutely irreconcilable. And that those people can only be defeated. They can never, we can never like get along. And I think maybe as people like go forward into the world, not only can they try to, you know, just uh, put in that that uh, additional time and energy into into getting to know more people and connecting with more people, they can also watch out for people who are trying to sell that terrifying danger in order to advance themselves. 
like mentioning Trump, his uh, his inaugural speech described uh, things as, quote, the American carnage stops right here, right now, end quote, even though I believe crime had gone down under his predecessor and and what Trump would call illegal immigration had slowed under his predecessor and all these other metrics had gotten better. The, the economy had gotten out of the toilet, but there was a danger that he felt was marketable. And then even when there are other actual dangers like climate change, those are waved away as hoaxes because those are much less marketable. There's there's no uh, no profit in that for uh, for a strong man. Right. And in whatever problem society has, whether your problem is like runaway capitalism or, you know, lack of job security, things like that. Those haven't come about because the average person around you is less trustworthy or has become worse. Right. Those are systemic things that that can be changed. Like there are policy changes, things like that, that can actually address a lot of those things. But it's not because neighbor has turned against neighbor and, you know, everyone hates each other now. And it's just like our whole relationship has become toxic and we can only just divorce each other. That's actually not one of our options. There's no... We, we we're never going to like separate America into multiple sections and just and just break it off and and sail it out into the ocean like like when I say you have to get along with your neighbors, I'm not urging you to do it. I'm saying you literally have to. You literally have no choice. Right. And when you know when we say things on here like, well, you have to kind of accept that some people will disagree with you politically, even if it means they voted for Trump. I'm not imploring you to accept them. I'm saying you literally have to, because if if you have like a pipe burst and you have to call a plumber overnight to come fix your leaky pipe, there's a great chance that person's a Trump supporter. And and for that night, while they're fixing your pipe, you just accepted them as a human being and a plumber who can fix your pipes. Like you don't have the option to exclude everyone who holds bad beliefs or incorrect beliefs or even if they personally don't approve of how you live or what you believe, you don't have that option. You're, you're living in a society (laughs) like you have to tolerate them. It doesn't matter whether you want to or not. You can't function. If you think you can get to a point to where I'm never going to ride in Uber with someone who is not a feminist or something like that. Like it doesn't work (laughs) that way, you know, in a workplace or anything like that, where you are, you have to work together on a task, even if you find out that like, oh, we, we don't like the same kind of music. We don't like the same anything. And in fact, that person thinks I'm going to hell when I die. But guess what? The next day you're going to work together again and you're going to keep working on the same project because you have to. And so I think if society is going to adjust, I think it has to be in that direction where you continue to find ways to make yourself do things with people who you otherwise would not associate with, whether it's for big reasons like a different worldview or for trivial reasons like they're just annoying. There's a value in dealing with annoying people. There's a value in getting to know people who fundamentally disagree with you and realizing, oh, you know what? We've still got to cooperate because I don't have the power to snap my fingers like Thanos and make everyone who disagrees with me vanish. I can mute them on Twitter and right. on Facebook. Over time, the market will continue to find more and more ways so that you don't have to interact with those people at all, right? Because you can now do your grocery shopping online. You can now order food from any restaurant. Where I'm living, 
It's not just takeout places. Like if you want McDonald's delivered to you, you can do it. So not even there. You don't even talk to the person at the drive-thru. You order on your phone. There's never a call and it just appears. And over time, it'll be, you need your car fixed. Somebody will come to your house and just take your car and it'll drop it off. You don't have to interact with a human being at all because they realize we don't want to do it. That loss of interaction with people who we otherwise wouldn't like has to be replaced with something that makes us do it. You've got to be put into situations where you're talking to people who you otherwise would never have associated with. Yeah. And if you do talk to them, you might even find out you like them a little bit. I don't think I'm just being like way overly optimistic by saying it. That's a, that's actually kind of a thing that happens. It's pretty neat. Or you find out that the reason every person you talk to is a jerk was actually, it was you, that the thing that all of those ah. interactions had in common, <laughs> that, that oh, the, yeah. common, the common denominator in all of those interactions was you. So when it's like, oh, everyone's annoying, you will come to find, I'm stating this from experience, that, you know what? Actually, I had only given myself an extremely narrow window of behaviors that were not annoying <laughs> and they were completely arbitrary. <laughs> and that in fact, it's not that everyone is annoying or everyone is mean or everyone is dumb. It's that I had set an extremely specific set of rules. And if anybody violated them, I wanted to just write them off. But that was me. That was actually yeah. not the world's fault. That was <laughs> that was a case where I had to put on shoes rather than try to carpet the earth. I, I like that mental picture so much. <laughs> I did not make that up. That is that is a common saying in case someone credits me for saying it. That is not mine. I stole <laughs> it from a bumper sticker, I believe. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for putting in the legwork and emotional labor of connecting with me. There's a there, there's a dose of something good in every opportunity to do that, and I am lame enough to be jazzed about it every time. But surprise, it's not lame. It's very good for your health. Why don't you feel that way too? But enough about me. Let's get you into our food notes, which feature Jason's excellent double column. Two whole links there. Title is 21 Weird Health Facts That Everyone Should Know. It's a part one and a part two, and just a really, really great chunk of things to know and think about and work into your own life. Also, lots of the statistics that we cited today about everything from pornography to social cohesion to just good old-fashioned internet stuff. Turns out about 75% of Americans are on Facebook and on YouTube. Uh, we're getting close to 50% for Instagram. So that social media stuff that uh, we leaned on a lot, it really is widespread in the country and something to be aware of. Here's something else to be aware of. If uh, if you want to see me do this podcast live with a bunch of great people, it's happening in a lot of places. Saturday, February 23rd, 9 p.m. at the UCB Sunset Theater in Los Angeles. We're doing a movie-focused episode that'll be very fun. And then our Cracked Podcast live tour that I keep getting to talk about and keep getting to be excited about. Chicago, April 11th. St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th. The, uh, the links to those tickets are in the food notes, and you can get them for yourself and see us do this thing for kind of the first time ever. We haven't done this show in those places, and I'm so glad we get to this spring. 
Beyond that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a thing we ought to be using in moderation. Boy, I'm, I'm just given all kinds of rules this week. Eat your vegetables, put a coat on, limit your Twitter, are things I'm saying from, from some sort of parental position. As you do use this stuff moderately, give me a moderate follow on my Twitter account. It is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmittstagram. I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.